You're listening to episode four of How Are We Not Invited? This week, Mary-Kate is intrigued by a trend on TikTok and gives it a try. Then we discuss our roots and how we identify with being from New England. Next, we bring on our guest, writer, director, and producer, Rob Smith, who shares his success story coming up in the film industry while facing adversity. He also lets us in on his relationship with his mentor, the late acclaimed director, John Singleton, and so much more. We know we are much too old for TikTok, but seriously, how are we not invited? Rolling out now for an epic night. Dressed to the nines, all stars in sight. But to their fright, they can't get inside. And on the guest list, well, check it twice. Can't get in. Rev's anger ignited. MK's heart stop, can't revive it. Bouncer saying, hey, let's not get excited. They yell back, how are we not invited? Hello, Mary-Kate. Hi, Rebecca. Happy episode four. Happy episode four. We're just chugging through. I love it. This is such a great episode. I'm so excited. Yeah, this one is really impactful. I think Um, an important conversation that we had surrounding like diversity in the industry. Um, it's, It was really cool. It was a lot of different perspectives that I don't think you will get from just Rebecca and I who, you know, are white girls from the Northeast. So, right. Yeah. Um, But before we get to our conversation with Rob Smith, uh, Mary Kate, tell me what you did this week. Yesterday. So I, (laughs) I've been seeing this trend on TikTok for people who think they might have curly hair and I know I know I don't have curly hair I know I don't have curly hair but I thought maybe there was enough wave in my hair that I could make curls I tried everything to curl my hair with a beachy wave and it just like doesn't do it do you use a curling iron okay yes but I am lazy okay if I do a curling iron it will work but not like super well I have Um, a hard time with a curling iron as well but I also have like stick straight hair yeah, my hair has like a little It does have body. It, yeah. But not enough. Like it just doesn't, I don't know. So there's this thing on TikTok, which is a place that I don't belong. Like I'm too old, but <laughs> I feel the same way. I don't even have it. I'm obsessed with it. But I'm I also feel it. like people in their 30s are really loving it. So it's, I'm wondering if I should get it. It's so funny. You a thousand percent should. It's <laughs> okay. so, so funny. I adore it. Um, I could like watch it for hours. I do watch it for like at least an hour, probably every day. It's ridiculous. Oh my God. All right. I have to so this trend. Yes. There's this like trend of what they call plopping your hair. <laughs> plopping your <What>? hair. <laughs> so <What>? you, <laughs> it's a way to like curl your hair. It's what us millennials would call beachy waves. I oh, think. Okay. Um, and so you wash your hair in the shower and you only brush it when there's conditioner in it. Then when you get out of the shower, you dry it with a t-shirt, put some product in it, like curl product, and you flip your head upside down and like lay your hair gently into the t-shirt and tie it up in your, around your head. So you're wearing this t-shirt on your head. Okay, wait, rewind. So you only have put conditioner in your hair, no shampoo? No, you, re- you shampoo and condition it, but you only brush it when there's conditioner in it. And then you okay. rinse all that out. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
So when you're, it's basically like the way you dry it is supposed to make it um, curl. And Up so, in a t-shirt. Yes. And so these women who were doing it, these girls, they're young, that were doing it had started off with like kind of wavy hair or like frizzier, but like sort of straightish, like whatever hair. And then they do it and they'd come out with these like beautiful curls. They'd take what? their t-shirt off their head after hours or whatever and they'd have gorgeous curls and I was like I gotta try this because I have a little bit of wave in my hair maybe I'll get curled uh-huh so I did it yesterday morning and I'm sitting around with my thing on my head t-shirt on your head okay. and so after close to six hours I was like all right I've got to take this off it's giving me such a headache like I'm done with this I'm done with the plop and so I was like touching it and it still felt wet so I tried to like dry it in the towel yeah. in the hair dryer and I take it out and I kid you not it was still wet <sighs> and it looked just like the flattest limpest <laughs> saddest version of my hair that you have ever seen and like my bangs were all messed up <laughs> and like I was like this is not fair this is not you, what happened. you did not plop right I I did plop right. I watched like seven videos again to be like, I did that, I did that, I did that. And I was finally like, okay, I just clearly don't have curly hair. Like I just have straight hair. I don't know what did. to do about it. And like, I was talking to my mom because my mom has curlyish hair, mm -hmm. much curlier than mine. Mm -hmm. My dad's, I don't know what my grandmother had. I don't ever remember seeing her with long hair. But my dad's sister and all of her daughters all have curly hair, like oh. frizzy, kind of straight. Like if they did the plop, they would have gotten rid of the frizz kind of a thing. You should have your mom so, try the plop. Like she could plop. She could plop. She could and plop. I could not plop. I could not plop. I don't have curly hair. And I was like. Not in your jeans. Well, but where are my jeans coming from? Both sides have curly. That and is I odd. Don't. And so the weirdest thing that I was thinking about, I was laughing, I was like, it's my French side. Because so my oh. family is Irish, Italian, and Portuguese. Mm -hmm. And I did Ancestry.com a couple oh, of years ago. Cool. And I got this random, like, 15% French. From your mom or dad? Not a clue. They both did the test, too. Neither of them have French. <laughs> It still identifies them as my parents, but I just have this mystery French. That's... And so I assume that the French is my um, straight hair gene. <laughs> the French that like you may or may not be though, because your parents don't have any French in them. I don't, it, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. They have no French, but I do. I don't, I don't know what that means. Oh my God. That's so funny. Speaking of TikTok, I d you know how people put TikTok on Instagram? So yes. then you, that, so like, that's how I view TikTok is like people who are posting it on Insta. Mm -hmm. And I have seen this TikTok that this guy does that's from Rhode Island mm -hmm. and he does the Rhode Island accent oh and he's always like talking, but he always has like his Dunkin' Donuts in his hand, <laughs> which I actually currently have one in my hand, yes, everyone. Do. I always have my donkeys. Um, <laughs> But I very, very much identify with that. But yeah, it's so funny because he does he does the accent. And he'll like stage like little incidents where like someone comes up to him and says like, hey, uh, 
can you give me directions like to get to I don't know where they say like Massachusetts yeah. or something and he's like oh, oh he's like all right well you gotta go down uh Pontiac Ave and pass that Dunkin <laughs> on the corner and then like a half mile up there's gonna be another Dunks take a left at that Dunks and then like <laughs> another half a mile there's gonna be another Dunks take a right at that Dunks and then you hop on 295 and you go north and like it's so funny <laughs> he's always talking about like it's so true like it's so accurate growing up in Rhode Island oh there was God. a Dunks a Dunkin Donuts on every single corner and like people make fun of me out in Los Angeles for being like so into dunks and like we don't we don't have many here I mean yeah. they opened up the first Dunkin Donuts in Los Angeles like a year before I moved here and that was wow. like 2014. Does it taste the same? I feel like I have an issue with the Los Angeles dunks because I don't think they they train their employees correctly ah. because they don't put enough ice and it drives oh. me crazy. The other thing that pisses me off is that when you go into a Dunkin' Donuts in Los Angeles and you say, hey, can I have an iced caramel swirl extra extra? They, they say, don't know what that means. They say, what? <laughs> an ice, they go, an iced coffee or an iced latte? And I'm like, if I say I want an iced, I want an iced coffee. I'm not talking about a latte or a cappuccino. Like they don't, they don't, they have to have you specify. And I'm like, I can't believe I actually have to say the word coffee when I go oh my god but anyway it's so well, it's that's funny I love that in Boston or in New England you can walk into a Dunks and be like I'll have a medium regular and they know what you're talking yeah. about a medium regular that's what is regular it's you, cream two sugars medium regular what yeah. did I not speak English to you yeah if you went it to LA and said a medium regular they'd be like um do you want milk do you want sugar? Is this a latte? Is this a cappuccino? It's like, can we not be LA about this? We oh have to be coffee. But anyway, um, to that point, uh, it's just funny because Mary Kate, you're talking about, you know, identifying with your a little bit of your French side, but thinking that you should have curly hair because you're Irish and yeah, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not French. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I am like you're identifying super... with your non-existent French side. Yeah, yeah. I'm super Boston Catholic, Irish Catholic, Italian Catholic. That uh -huh. is that is what I identify with. Yeah. Like such a big part, I feel like, of my identity. Everybody talks about like, you know, different cultures across, you know, Southern culture, Black culture, whatever. It's like, mm, I'm Boston Catholic culture. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I feel that way about Italian Rhode Island. Yes. for me and you know where we grew up like just like seeps into you and you just like there's no way to ignore it like just you know the Dunkin Donuts thing like people think it's crazy that I'm like super into Dunkin but my whole like growing up was everything revolved around Dunkin my grandfather went to Dunkin Donuts every or honeydew donuts he didn't he didn't oh, honey uh, yeah, he loved honeydew but like you know we grew up going to dunks papa's gonna get his coffee um yeah. when we were teenagers it was like let's go to dunks before the beach you yeah. know we gotta go grab our iced coffee we everything was oh let's after we go to the club you know when we were 20 21 like we gotta go meet at dunkin donuts the 24-hour one. Oh my god like, get our egg and cheeses so it's just so funny with like such a silly thing, but you know, being out in Los Angeles, it really makes me feel close to home. Yeah. To have my dunks. 
I feel like that kind of thing always comes up in terms for me of like, what do you do? Like, what are your fam? Like, what does your family do? How do you celebrate a holiday? Like, whatever mm-hmm. it looks different like I remember so many things like oh I'll bring like a box of joe and some munchkins like that yes. kind of thing it's just yeah. so funny that like your family is so like formed or I guess family is part of the culture like not everybody has the same kind of like family values and expectations that like an Italian Catholic family does where it's like Sunday dinner or right. like yeah. the gravy oh we did not have gravy it was always <laughs> sauce we were definitely a gravy family, Italian gravy with the meatballs and spaghetti. Um, but to that point, um, in relation to even what we talk about with Robin a little while is I feel like a lot of times where you come from influences what you do and your career. And I would say for me personally, growing up in Rhode Island and it being such a small state, and not much, not much to do. I mean, Providence, Rhode Island is a beautiful city. Brown University is there. RISD is there. There's culture there. There's a little Italian section. And then we have the beaches and Newport with the mansions. But it felt very small to me. And I, I really feel that growing up in such a small place was a lot of the reason why I wished for more and ended up in the mm-hmm. film industry because it made me feel like... I have to get out of here because there's so much more to the world that I need to see. And I'm not seeing it in this little tiny state that only takes an hour to get across driving, you know, like yeah. I want to experience a larger city, which is why I went to college in New York and then why I lived in Boston and then why I came out to LA at the end of the day. And I think that uh, it maybe if I had grown up in Boston, like you did, maybe I wouldn't have come all the way out to LA because I would have been, I don't know. It's just interesting to think of it that way. It totally is. I don't know, like, I don't know what, I don't think it was so much that I was driven out of Boston, but like, I know that this industry is limited there and like Mm -hmm. what I want to do doesn't, doesn't exist there, unfortunately. And like, I wanted to grow further and bigger. And at the same time though, like living here in New York, I love it but it's not home, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I'm always looking for those experiences that I get at home, whether it's like, oh, a restaurant that I want to go to, or like, oh, they don't have like, they don't have, this is so silly, but like Chinese food restaurants that are tiki themed, like they don't have that here. And I'm like, yeah, oh, that's what, such is, a Boston what is thing. different? I didn't yeah. know that that like wasn't a thing. It's like silly stuff like that. And you're like, oh, I want to go home. But I think that makes like seeing stories about where you're from, like it makes it even more exciting on mm-hmm. like TV or on in a movie. Like that's oh, why yeah, I'm I sure love you... like The Departed. Yes, and, me too. Like, looking actually... back at like Black Mass, yeah. Yeah, I, it's funny because I actually identify so much with Boston because you know whenever we wanted to do something big as a family, it always was in Boston. Whether it was mm-hmm. like a Red Sox game or a concert, like all mm-hmm. the big stuff happened in Boston, and it only took like 45 minutes to get there driving which is how long it takes to get anywhere in Los Angeles, um, if not longer. But, but so, and then from working there for the eight years or so that I did, I feel the same way, Mary-Kate, because they don't really make a lot of movies in Rhode Island, but the Boston movie mm-hmm. is like the closest I can get to that. And man, they filmed so, and they still do film so many movies yeah. in Boston. So yeah. 
and I we're lucky that we have like movies about our culture which tends to now that I'm thinking about it be like gangsters but you know yeah, that's mob, fine like, mob yeah <laughs> mob movies yeah but it is it is so important and I think this is echoed in a little bit in our conversation with Rob but like it's so important for that representation to have different stories told from different places that aren't just New York and LA because mm-hmm. that's not life for most people mm-hmm. so it's cool to see it reflected back and like bring that to like what you're making you know right absolutely so I think it might be a great time to to transition into that conversation definitely awesome all right guys well I hope you enjoy it all right, everyone, we have Rob Smith here with us today. Hi, Rob. What's up? How are you? I'm well. Good. So Good. excited to meet you and talk to you. Of course, of course. We are very excited to have you here today. Um, so Rob and I actually met uh, filming the movie Coming to America, the sequel. And that's still in uh, post-production, so you guys have to keep an eye out for that. But Rob, tell us a little bit about what you do for work. Uh, so I work for an extraordinary director named Craig Brewer. Mm-hmm. He did uh, Hustle and Flow, Black Snake Moan, and he was a writer, director, producer on Empire. That's how we met. And from there, uh, he did Dolomite, It's My Name. Mm-hmm. And now he is in post-production for Coming to America 2 yep. as the director and producer. Which is going to be, I know because I was there, it's going to be such an awesome movie. I'm so excited for it. So, Rob, earlier in the episode, Mary-Kate and I were talking a lot about where we grew up and how it influenced us in what we do and our careers. And I want to talk about you growing up in Mid-City in Los Angeles. Can you talk a little bit about that? And uh, how kind of it's affected, you know, your career choices and maybe some of the films that you've made? Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, so I, I grew up off of uh, Hauser and Washington, um, Adams and La Brea. And uh, back when I was a kid, it was considered South Central. And then years later, uh, it became Mid-City. Right. And so... I represent both parts. I represent, when people ask me where I'm from, I say I'm from Mid-City, South Central. Uh, and so growing up, you know, in that area, you know, gang infested, you know, a lot of violence going on, mm-hmm. uh, pretty much being, pretty much having to be mature beyond my years. Of course. Mm-hmm. And having to grow up very, very fast. And so there were things that, I just had to learn right away. You know, uh, like for example, uh, in my neighborhood, my father told me very, very early on that, you know, always look a man in his eye, you know, never call a man a bitch, you know, never, um, you know, if, if, if one of your friends has a girlfriend, then don't even be friends with her, you know, she's off limits. Wow. And, and if you do those things, you'll survive the wow. neighborhood. And that was something that, my father really kind of beat into me right away mm-hmm. because he, you know, he didn't raise a punk. And right. I know mm-hmm. for me, you know, just like having to go through some of the things that he was telling me, 
as I got older, I started to really realize that it was it was knowledge. It, it, it was it was something that I had to do because there were friends of mine who were you know had to fight, and um, because there's there's a code that you have to follow, and it kind of is what it is, you know, uh, and so forth. Um, and I know for me growing up, you know, for example, uh, I have friends from out of town who I've gone out with, like, you know, we've gone out to like bars or whatever, and they may get banged on by like a, a crip or a blood. Wow. Like, well, I don't understand. Like, you know, this is why, why, why are we coming to me? And I had to explain to him, I said, man, that's, that's LA culture, homie. Like, you know, when someone walks up to you and says, where you from, what set you from, what who you from, just say you don't bang, but it's something that you, you know, you being in LA is something that you're susceptible to, you know, it is what it is. And if you what does bang mean? Sorry, I oh, I mean, just bang this, you know, gang members, you know, like it's where what set you're from, like what street you're from, what hood you're from, you know. So, okay. and if someone says a bang, that means that they're that, that they're in a gang, so okay. it's just it's just slang for saying that, you know. Um, so if someone's like, yo, man, like, you know, I bang this hood, that means that he, you know, he's he's affiliated with a gang in that in that mm. area. Okay. And so, you know, you're, 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 you're forced to respect it, whether you like it or not, you know. Mm. I have to say that this is reminding me so much of the John Singleton film, Boys in the Hood. Um, just your story about, you know, the things that your father told you in order to, you know, be respected and stay out of trouble growing up. This all was reflected in that film. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually, it brings me to my next point where I wanted to talk about John Singleton and how he has affected the film industry as a whole and his influence and i know you actually had a relationship with him right rob yeah i did um so can you talk about how you met him and what kind of things you learned from him and then i'd love to even just talk about boys in the hood a little bit and like how you can relate to it mm -hmm. uh well you know um well first of all you know rest in peace rest um, in peace john singleton absolutely yeah rest in peace uncle john mm -hmm. um he was he was more than a mentor he was you know he was family to me uh i actually met him about uh yeah about eight nine years ago and mm -hmm. the crazy story was that i think i was preparing to do my thesis film and where did you and, go to school rob uh so i went to cal state dominguez hills for undergrad i studied mm -hmm. sociology uh and my plan was to go to law school but i had an uncle who's a lawyer who talked me out of it <laughs> He was like, hey, man, you know, yeah. you've always been a creative guy since you were young. Right. So you should like lean on that. And uh, I remember I was going to Chicago to visit my brother. And somebody told me to apply to film school. And so I applied at Loyola Marymount. It was always a, a dream school of mine. Mm -hmm. And I, I got in. Amazing. And with, awesome. no prior, with no prior film experience, they accepted me. And that was kind of all she wrote. And uh, so, you know, going back to your question, Rebecca. Uh, so... When I was doing my, when I was preparing to do my thesis film, I, I was having trouble finding crew. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I remember that one of my producers, she put up a, a sign up or a posting on the internet or whatever. And she was saying, hey, you know, like there's this black student at LMU who is doing this inspirational story about his brother who has autism and uh, who fought to become a part of his uh, swimming team at his local high school. Mm -hmm. And so this one girl, you know, reached out and, oh, black student who's doing this film? Okay, cool. Like, I'm, I'm definitely going to work on it. And 
this young lady uh, worked on it as a script supervisor. And after that, her and I were pretty much inseparable. You know, she was like a little sister to me. Mm -hmm. And so one day I'm at my house and she goes, hey, do you want to hang out with my father and I on his yacht? And of, of course me, you know what I mean? Like, oh. I've, never, I've never been on a yacht yeah. before. I'm like, uh, hell yeah. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm about that. Yeah, and you're so, like, <laughs> you don't yeah. take no to a yacht. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, yeah. I've literally never been on a yacht in my life. Yeah. And so he picks me up and we, we drive down to Marina Del Rey and we hop on this yacht and all, and then I'm like, I'm, I'm sitting there chilling, right? And all I can remember was that I just saw this bald head, milk dud just kind of like creep up the steps <laughs> and then I, I take a look and I'm like oh shit this is John Singleton <laughs> I, had, oh my God. I, I was like I had I had no idea that her father was John Singleton so shout out to Justice his daughter yes but she was she you know, never she mentioned was like, it it's about time that you meet my father oh so John and I we sat there and talked for about three or four hours wow John and the one real story that really touched John was that when I was a kid, you know, I, I was a hard-headed kid. I was the type of kid who, if my dad told me not to put my hand on the stove because it's hot, I'm not gonna hear him. Once he walks away, I, I gotta test it for myself. <laughs> that's, that's, that's Ouch! Just a kid I, you know, I, I got, I got, I got a lot of whoopings growing up. That's that. That was yeah. just a kid. I was a hard-headed kid. Yeah. And but my, what my father did was that I was about maybe about eight or nine years old, my dad sat me down and he made me watch Boys in the Hood. Wow. And I was telling John this. And I was like, you know, I was like, I was like, man, John, you know, like my dad had me sit there and watch your movie. And I didn't really, I didn't quite understand the semantics of it all. But as I got older, I realized, I was like, okay, cool. This is the environment in which I'm growing up in. That's what so I, I was, was going to say. When you described growing up, it, it was almost exact. Right, right. And, 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 and when I told John that he just, I mean, he was just, he was in awe. Right. And he told me, he said, Hey man, you know, you seem like a really cool kid. Uh, you seem like you have your head on straight, take down my number and I'm gonna start mentoring you like wow. off the bat. That's oh awesome. my God. And so from there, he actually mentored me for like the last eight or nine years of his life. Wow. And that was how I, he was actually the connective tissue on how I met Craig. Okay, so how did that happen? So I was, so, okay, so at a film school, my first job, I was, I was a post PA on Minority Report, a okay. TV show. It was, yeah. Yeah. But um, I actually- We all have those kind of yeah, jobs. Yeah, you gotta start you know, somewhere. Yeah, you gotta start somewhere, you know, yeah. grabbing lunch and- Exactly, we all oh, yeah. know. Just doing the whole thing. I and, still do it. <laughs> right, right. You know, and, and so Empire was actually down the hallway. It was a building that I worked in in Beverly Hills, and it was a bunch of TV shows mm -hmm. in the building. And Empire was actually down the hallway. So every so often, Lee Daniels would come in, and there was it was a few times where wait, I Rob, sorry if if anyone listening doesn't know, Lee Daniels is the creator of co-creator of, of Empire. Em yeah. He also directed Precious. Okay, cool. And he has a bunch of other accolades, but got it. Yeah, so <laughs> okay, yeah, Lee Daniels on. is the man. Shout out to Lee Daniels. But um, what I would do is that I remember one time specifically where I saw him pull into the park lot and I'm like carrying, carrying groceries, you know, and I say, you know what, I, I'm going to actually stall and, and wait for him to get on the elevator so I can hop on the elevator with him. 
And so it, it worked out perfectly. It didn't seem on the nose or whatever. And so as we're in the elevator, we start having this conversation. He goes, oh, you know, like, I've seen you around and what do you do? And mm-hmm. sometimes my whole life story, you know, within two minutes, I'm, you know, I remember um, watching an interview about how if you had two minutes with your famous director or writer or producer, can you pitch him in two minutes? It's so literally two, your elevator pitch. Literally, it was an elevator pitch. <laughs> That's amazing. And I love after that. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so after I got off the elevator, he goes, hey, man, you know, drop off your groceries at Minority Port and then come, come over down the hallway. I'm going to introduce you to some people. So I go awesome. down the hallway and Lee is just introducing me to all these writers and his um, his sister, Leah Daniels Butler, who was, who was the, the casting director of Empire, also mm-hmm. the casting director of Coming to America, too. Right. I remember her. Um, yeah. I actually didn't realize that was his sister. So that's that was crazy. his sister. Yeah. Leah Daniels Butler. Yeah. yeah. Shout out to her, too. Love yes. her. Love her, too. Uh, but yeah, so I, you know, I met her and met a bunch of writers and so forth. And then something happened to where I think one of the writers, one of the writer PAs got it promoted to a writer's assistant on Atlanta. And so they had an opening. I found out about it. Mm-hmm. So I applied and um, I got hired. And so from there, I worked on the end of season two, mm-hmm. the writer's PA, and then mm-hmm. season three as a writer's PA. And then season four, they promoted me to a writer's assistant. And nice. uh, and so Craig actually came on, cause so Craig was a, a, a director on season two and season three, but season four, he actually became a writer and a director and a producer. So he was actually in the writer's room. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so, you know, talking to Craig and, and telling, him, telling him I'm a big fan of his work and so forth. And, and it was crazy because one day I was in the writer's room and I was preparing uh, the board for the day. That's normally what writer, writer assistants do. You know, we prepare the, the board for the day, all the cards that go up and the notes and so forth. You know, just making sure we remind the writers of what happened the day before or the okay. days past. Mm. Um, and so one of the writers one day uh, was like, you know, what did you do this weekend? And I was like, well, um, I was on, I was actually on John's yacht. He was writing the pilot for Snowfall. Oh, and right. Craig and Craig heard that. And Craig was like, John. He goes, John who? He goes, I'm like, John Singleton. He goes, you know, John is my mentor. John oh my produced God. Hustle and Flow and, and, and Black Snake Moan. And I'm like, dude, I know who you are, bro. And, <laughs> and I, I say, I said, John is my man. And I said, John is mentoring me. And that was pretty much oh, all she that wrote. Connection, and, yes. Right. And so from there, Craig took a very strong interest in me. He watched my thesis film, and him, he, him and I were able to relate because Craig has a son who's also autistic. Oh, and wow. so it just really connected. And so about six months later, I asked the showrunner, "Can I go to Chicago?" Because uh, Empire, the writers' room and the casting is in LA, but the we actually shoot in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So I said, hey, you know, I would love to go to Chicago and meet and be on set and actually meet the people who, I e- who I've been emailing for the past two years, but have yeah. never met them. Good for you for asking and that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, Brett Mahoney is his name. That was a showrunner. Shout out to him, too. Mm-hmm. But um, Brett said, okay, he said, as long as you can get a director who can, that can sign off on it. And so Craig, I asked Craig, I said, hey, Craig, can I come assist you in Chicago? Are you cool with that? And Craig was like, yeah, of course, of course. So I went out to Chicago and I uh, was assisting him for the, for the two weeks that we were out there. 
And while we were out there, Craig uh, asked me to read the script. And the script was called Dolomite Is My Name. Yes. Mm. And while I was out in Chicago, I read the script. And then, you know, so Craig was starting to quiz me on the act breaks and, you know, the characters and so forth. And I was just spitting back to him. I was like, hey, you know, the act break is here. First act break, the second act break, you know, midpoint, the whole nine. And Craig was like, okay, cool, cool. You know, I like your style. Like, you know, you know what you're talking about. And so as we were leaving, we were in the, both in the airport and Craig was, Craig asked me, he goes, well, were you up to it? And I said, well, um, I'm hoping that Empire will ask me back because the way it works in the industry is that you have to be asked back. They, okay. It's not guaranteed, you know, it's uh, like a contract. Yeah. You sign on for one Her. season and then the showrunner has to literally ask you back. Wow. Mm-hmm. And Craig goes, okay, cool. He goes, well, I'll keep in touch. And so about two weeks later, I'm in my office at Empire and Craig is editing his episode for Empire. And I walk in, I speak to him and Craig goes, uh, hey man, um, you, you might, can I walk with you? And I'm like, yeah, of course. I mean, you're, you're Craig Brewer. Of course you can walk with you. <laughs> can I walk with you? you know, yeah. That's, 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 yeah. that's the better question. That's the real question. Yeah, right, right. So I'm walking with Craig down the hallway and Craig goes, remember that script that you, that you read? Dolomite is my name. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, well, I'm going to make it. They're going to let me direct it. And I need an assistant. Uh, I would love to hire you. But the only thing is that you have to quit Empire in order Uh, to take the job. mm -hmm. And so about two weeks later, Empire called me on the phone and said, hey, Rob, we want to ask you back for season five. And uh, I told Craig and Craig was like, well, tell him that um, you can't come back. Unavailable. I'm unavailable. Yes. And and so I actually had to quit Empire about two weeks before I was done at Empire, my contract or whatever you call it, the right. you know, before the season was over with mm-hmm. hop on and, and 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 jump shit with Craig. And uh and so I did. And uh and, and it was great. And, and Empire did a, a lot for my for my career and for where I am today. So the way I was able to give back was I went back and I spent a day or two and I trained the new writer's assistants and, and, the, and the new PA that came on. Uh, and so from there, Craig and I went on to do uh, Dolomite is my name. Great movie on, uh, uh, it's on Netflix, right? Netflix, mm-hmm. yeah, Netflix. Great and uh, from there, I, I did a great job. Uh, and John Davis, the producer of, of Netflix and Craig had a discussion and they decided to promote me to an associate producer on the film. Congratulations. Awesome. And also too, I do play audio engineer. So about minute 20 oh. in the film, you'll see oh. me. I got I got a pro on and everything and Okay, yeah. okay. So you know I, everybody look out for that. A minute great. twenty yeah. into Dolmite is my name. Well, 20, you get a look twenty minutes in. Like twenty two oh, minutes. Twenty in. minutes. Got it. Okay. During, everybody yeah. look for that. <laughs> so great. Is I play the audio engineer. I, I, I stick my thumb up when Mike Evans yes. is talking. And uh, I love that. So I went on to do that. And it, it was crazy because like when I first got the job with Craig, I wanted to be a director so bad. Mm-hmm. And Craig, you know, Craig and I, we had a couple of discussions when I, when I was driving home from home from set. And he was just saying that, hey, dude, I know you want to direct. And at some point you will direct in your career, but I think you really should focus on producing. That's mm-hmm. something you're very good at. You're, you're, you're a good people person. You like putting out fires mm-hmm. and just focus on that. And uh, so when we left to go do Coming to America 2 in Atlanta, which I've never been to Atlanta, actually I've been once, but I had a conversation. I had a very come to Jesus moment where I was like, you know what, I'm going to do a Craig says. And so Craig and I had a conversation on the way to work. 
And I told Craig, I said, you know what? On this film, I'm really gonna focus on being a producer. And I'm gonna, oh. and so what I did was on on coming to America too. Instead of watching him as a director, I came to set every day and said, "Hey, how can I put out fires? Whatever the problems are, that. how can I put them out? How can mm -hmm. I make sure the I producers are okay? How can I make sure the costume designer is okay? How can I make sure uh, the AD is okay? How can what can I do to make Craig's job easier?" Mm -hmm. And I went to work every day with that enthusiasm. And right. it, it worked out well because I made a lot of good relationships. Obviously, I met Rebecca mm -hmm. and, and Kevin Misher and, and, and so forth. And yeah, so right now uh, I'm, I'm at a very good place. Uh, I would say in March or in February, Craig uh, promoted me to a development executive for him. So, Congratulations. Look at yeah. you climbing up that ladder. I have, I mean, I have to say every great director does have a producing partner and they, they truly need one. And I think that's incredible that you've been chosen yeah. that position. You deserve it. I mean, I have to say, um, I have watched your thesis mm -hmm. and, um, you've watched, you also made the other film that you made, um, Scorpion the Frog. Yeah, it was it was it was a school project. It was the first thing I made, uh, Scorpion the Frog. That was like my mm -hmm. first thing I did. Yeah, and that movie actually, did you t kind of take upon like your where you grew up and different experiences you had to make that film? Mm -hmm. it, it, yeah, I did. Uh, you know, just growing up where I grew up, you know, it's uh, I don't know. I, I took I took slices from different people that I know. It's not truly based on me. It's based on people that I know and I grew up with. Right. Uh, but yeah, no, it was a very, it was a very interesting project because that was, that was when I figured out that directing and being on set is something that I want to do, you know? And yeah. uh, I was able to work with actors. Uh, actually, one of the, the star of the film, uh, Marlon Gates was actually, uh, my neighborhood friend, I actually grew up about three doors down from him. Wow. Wow. He was a yeah. great actor, too. Yeah. I mean, all those actors in both mm -hmm. of your films are yeah. amazing. They all seem like total professionals. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. We actually did it yeah. with a skeleton crew. It was about maybe five or six of us. It was very mm -hmm. tough to make. Uh, but, I mean, we got it done. You know, I, I shot in the neighborhood that I grew up in. And, yeah, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a tale that... I think uh, a lot of people can relate to because, you know, you, you have this thing in, in life called betrayal. And it's something that mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure a lot of people have gone through where you trust someone and then they end up betraying you at the very end. I've gone through it. I'm pretty sure you guys have in some part of your life uh, with friends mm -hmm. or family members or so forth. And so that was the story that I want to tell. I was very moved by uh, the scorpion, the frog tell, you know, the, the scorpion mm -hmm, right. come to the frog and saying, Hey man, we got to cross this river. Frog is like, nah, homie, like, you know, I can't trust you. You're a scorpion. But nah, man, we got to make it cross the river. You know, like let's do it together. The frog ends up trusting the scorpion. And then halfway through the scorpion stings them. And as they're drowning, the frog is like, man, hold up, dude. Like you just told me you weren't going to sting me. He goes, man, I'm a scorpion. And so for me is that when people show you their true colors, believe that shit you know mm -hmm. when, when someone Absolutely. shows you who they are you gotta you gotta believe it and you know yeah. and so 
for me, it was a it was a it was a tell that I wanted to to explore because that happens mm -hmm. a lot in in every society, whether you're black, white, you know, purple, green, blue, whatever you are, people go through the same issues. Yeah, exactly. I'm curious. So, you know, this is directing is more about like telling the story. How do you see the producer like and what you're doing now as like helping, like it helps hold that up. But, like, what does that sort of look like to you, the two different roles? And like, how are you making this like work for yourself, for your dreams, what you want? Mm -hmm. The one thing that I've taken from producing, uh, especially like working with Craig and then uh, working, you know, because um, I, I also I worked with John for a summer uh, when he was when he was gearing to do Tupac, which sadly never happened but oh right he was supposed to be doing his documentary no it was it was actually a movie that oh. he wrote uh he, he actually wrote the oh. he actually wrote tupac's uh you know tupac's um biopic life and okay yeah which was crazy because i actually read it and i i sit wow. i sat in his office and i would just read it and uh and for me like what i really got out of what i'm getting out of producing right now is that things aren't perfect. You know, you can prepare as mm -hmm. much as you can prepare. You can be, yep. you can be fully equipped, have the squad, have everybody ready to go, rehearsals, the whole nine, and you get to set. And all of a sudden, an actor can say, hey, man, um, I'm not feeling that. And mm -hmm, I've right. seen that happen so many times. Where, oh, yeah. You know, uh, and, and, and that's what helped me for my thesis when I did Race in the 500, where I would sit with my main actor. I mean, because literally what I did was that um, right before I shot, I actually like didn't go to class and didn't go to work. And I hung out with my actors. I, you know, I hung out with them. I watched movies with them. I talked with them. And uh -huh. I remember specifically where I sat with my actors and we would go over lines. We would talk about what he was thinking, what she was thinking, what I was thinking, how we can make it work. You know, uh, and you know, it's in a partnership. And then I would get to set and particularly where the actor, right before we get ready to shoot, the actor would say, well, I'm not really feeling that. And I'm like, well, bro, we talked about this for a week straight. And so right. as a producer, you gotta, you gotta find ways to make things work. Even when, you know, it's, it's like, you know, when you, when you try to stick a, um, a triangle block into, um, uh, into a circle hole and it just doesn't fit. As a producer, you got to find a way to make it fit. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if it means right. shaving off part of it, whatever, you got to make it fit. And so that's actually been really helpful because I know, for example, uh, J uh, John talked about Baby Boy and about, I, I noticed if you ever watched the film, it's, it's a lot of, in, in a lot of his scenes, there's a lot of foreground and background. And I asked him about that. I was like, I said, were you experimenting? Like, what was going on there? You know, because I, I noticed that was that was what he really went for in the movie. He goes, man, a lot of times we would get on set and I would only have 30 minutes to shoot a scene. And, and then he would say, how can I shoot this scene to where it's impactful for the audience, where they understand my vision and understand what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to convey from the characters. And so right. as a producer, I'm taking that and, and, you know, and I'm running with it, you know, cause like yeah. just recently I shot a music video about two weeks ago and we were in a right. location to where, you know, the artist said that, Hey, we have it locked down for, you know, five or six hours. And then as soon as we get there, people start complaining about the noise and so forth. So uh -huh. I'm thinking, I'm saying, okay, cool. 
how can I, I was supposed to get four takes of this. How can I get it in two? How can I run right. the song and get what I need in five minutes or instead of 15 minutes? And so working with Craig and being mentored by John has mm -hmm. really uh, shaped me to be a problem solver. Mm. That's amazing. And, you know, all of these things you're learning um, as a producer will only make you a better director because directors also have to problem solve. Right. An actor is going to go to the director first mm. and say, I don't like that line. What can I do? Or, you know, I don't like the way that came out. Help me. So it's only going to make you a better director at the end of the day. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. So I'm curious about like the lack of diversity in our industry and what you think of that, because it's right now I'm working with a little startup um, who literally is looking for highly educated women, people of color and does extra training, extra networking. Like there's all kinds of stuff because so much of like your story and any of our stories are all through networking. We all get our jobs from who we know, who we're lucky enough to come across, whatever. And that, it seems really like unequal. Having been on film sets, there are not a lot of people of color. What is your experience with that? Uh, I mean, for me, I've been extremely blessed and I've been extremely lucky. My aunt has been a post-producer for like the last 30 years. I mean, she was on SVU when I was a kid. So, I mean, that helped a lot. Uh, she had a hand in, in getting me my first job. Uh, but I mean, I think like, it's like what's going on right now is that Hollywood is starting to wake up, I think. And yeah, I think for right. so long, it's been dominated by, it, okay, like for example, uh, when I was a kid, I was taught up until about fifth grade that Christopher Columbus was a hero. And yep, it wasn't until right. like I got to, to I, had, I came home one day and I was telling my dad about what I learned. And he goes, whoa, 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 hold on. That's absolutely wrong. And I think that with Hollywood, it's, it's deep. It's, it's, you know, you, it's, right. it's been ran by, you know, by, um, how can I say this? Old it's, white dudes. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah, lack of a better word. But, and yeah. so Rich, it, it goes old. back to, yeah, it goes back white. to, people not, uh, to, to, to them not being receptive to black films and, and because to them, it's not that important. And well, and they can't relate. So they're not interested. Right, they can't relate. Yeah. So not yeah. E e exactly. You know, and I mean, cause you know, Viola Davis said something the other day that I thought was very interesting. She was saying that, uh, she goes, Hey, you know, I have a Tony, I have an Oscar and I have an Emmy. But when people see me on the street, they say, oh, you're you're the Black Meryl Street. Right. And she's like, well, mm -mm. I'm I'm on their level. You know, I went, I, I, I did exactly what they did, but they, I'm referred to as a Black Meryl Street as opposed to like Viola Davis. Yeah, why do I have to be yeah. the version of this white actress? Why can't exactly. I just be my own actress, my own incredible yeah. actress? Yeah, mm -hmm. that's, I, I did see that she said that and I thought that was very powerful. How do you feel as an African-American um, on set and with this crew being one of the only people of color? Does it bother you? Like, what are your feelings sometimes when you're on this set of like, you know, 80 or 90 percent 
white people? Uh, for me, I just, it doesn't, it used to bother me, but when I'm on set, you know, what I, uh, when I see that, what I say to myself is that, you know, I have to make sure that my shit is straight and I have to outwork everybody on set because that's how I'm going to get noticed. I can't slack. I can't make a mistake. Uh, I remember it was, it was, um, guy, I think his name was Tay Lopez or Ty Lopez, but he said something about, uh, the people who are most successful in this world are the people for out of every million things they do, they make one mistake or two mistakes. And so when I'm on set, that's how I think I say, you know what? I have to make sure that I, I represent my people, my black yes. folks in a way where I, I, you know, I have to, I have to outwork everybody. And also too, instead of me getting upset about what I see, when I, when I get in position to where I can help, I have to start putting my people on. And yeah. so, like, for example, um, the writer's PL empire, when I left, it's my homegirl, Lauren, she's black. I put her on, you know, um, yep. my, my friend, Kalila, um, I, I put her on Dolomite, um, justice, put her on Dolomite. So yes. my friend, a pretty put her on, put her on Dolomite. And so, mm -hmm. and that, so that, that's, that's, that's how I look at it. Instead of me getting upset and saying, oh, well, there's, there's only three black people. And I say to myself, I say, you know what? Let me go ahead and bust my ass so when I get an opportunity, I can put my people on. Yeah, yeah. I love that outlook. Yeah. And tell me what you would say to your fellow um, African-American filmmakers and students and like what would you, what kind of advice would you give them to not give up and to keep pushing and that kind of thing? Uh, you know, don't, don't be scared. Don't be scared to fail, you know. Um, put, you know, put your best foot forward, be genuine. Uh, and, and just work your ass off, you know, because like, I know for a fact that a bunch of, uh, people that I know that I even went to school with who were like, I'll never be a PA. I'll never be a PA. You know, PA is beneath me. Mm -mm. Being a PA was the best thing that could have ever happened yeah. to me because there are instincts that you learn that I apply with Craig today where, right. you know, for example, being organized, um, being two steps ahead, knowing what a per knowing what a writer may want to eat for lunch like I, I remember when i was on empire i used to memorize exactly what each writer wanted from each restaurant if you i think really what it is is that it's it's definitely um you know it's definitely uh, uh being presentable but also too i think it's just working hard because yeah. yeah even if you're even if you make a mistake but the person knows that your heart is in a good place and you're a hard worker then chances are good you're gonna get a shot. And that's what happened with me, you know, where I, you know, they, when I was on Empire, you know, they would say, can you get the lunch here by one o'clock? My goal every day was 1230. Yeah. I aimed yep. for 1230. I'm like, let me aim a half an hour early. So that way, if I'm late, I get there at 1245. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and taking pride, you gotta take pride because I think a lot of people, they, they get into the industry and you know, they're, they're at the bottom, they're, they're PAs and so forth. And they, they, they get down on themselves. And it's like, nah, like, you're given an opportunity. If you work hard as a PA and they can see you can handle it, you know, so I give you more responsibility. And, and that's what happened with me. You know, at first, you know, I was just getting lunch. And then from there, they're like, okay, cool. He can handle lunch. Well, you know, how about, can you handle the music calls? You know, can you handle, you know, can you handle setting, setting the writers up? Yeah. And so that's, so you have to, you have to think about it as a, a process. You know, you have to keep building. Uh, I mean, Will Smith said it best. He, he gave this example about how, I think one summer his dad and him were building some type, I think building a 
some type of building or a pharmacy or something they were doing. And Will was saying to his father, he goes, we're never going to get this done. And what his father was saying was that, you know, we lay a brick a day at a time. And then before you knew it, you know, that castle's being built, that, that establishment is being built. And so for me, I come from a family of, of hard workers. So I always thought that if I keep my head up, keep a good attitude, then things will open for me. As long as I keep doing, as long as I keep doing what's in front of me and showing and, and taking pride in what I do. Yeah. And I think the great thing about it too, Rob, is that when you, you know, start to produce your own films and direct your own films, you will be just like another John Singleton or a Spike Lee and you can expose these injustices and show the world, you know, what is really going on, what people are blind to, which John has done in his films over and over again. Um, and I think it's wonderful that these black directors have paved the way for more African-American, you know, directors like yourself to be able to continue on that legacy. And do you, do you feel excited about that as well? Oh yeah, of, of course. I mean, you know, I, I really, really admire Ryan Coogler, you know, uh, because he was a guy who, you know, he's, he's, he's from, he's from the Bay area. He's, you know, from the hood and he initially wanted to be a doctor and he wrote a paper and his professor was like, Hey, have you ever thought about filmmaking? And he goes, what was that? You know, didn't even, didn't even know what a script was, but yeah. came home, read, you know, I think he read, um, I think he read Pulp Fiction. He goes, oh, okay, this is how it's supposed to be done. And so I think like, as long as, and, and, and look at him, you know, like, I mean, he went from, you know, nothing to like directing Black Panther and being one of the top directors around and which is paving the opportunity for for other black filmmakers and i think that it goes back to what i was saying before i think that we have to lead by example and so for people like john and people like spike when when a door was closed they're like okay okay cool i'm gonna find another door and i think that it, it's just it's just being resilient and and the, and the more that mm -hmm. we're resilient as as black filmmakers then you know, the more then you know, then the more opportunity we're going to go ahead and get. We can't take no for an answer. And I, I think that's essentially like what I'm saying is that we have to go out there and we have to make our films. And if someone tells us no, then fuck it, we'll open up another door. You know, and I think that that's what we're doing now. You know, with like the Ava DuVernay's of the world, and, and I mean, because I think she decided, to, I think she picked up a camera at like 32 or 33 years old. And so I think it, it goes back to that un, it goes back mm -hmm. to that 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 passion of like. I'm gonna do right. this, you know. Michael Jordan getting cut from his his high school JV team. Mm -hmm. He didn't take no for an answer. He goes, no, I'm I'm gonna do this. Kobe Bryant, you know, airballed, you know, three times in the '97 playoffs, and came on to be a five-time NBA champion. And I think that it, it it goes back to like this. Hollywood is not perfect, especially for black folks, mm -hmm. especially for black filmmakers. But I think if we keep being resilient then that will pave the way for people like myself because I, I wanted to be a filmmaker watching John before I even knew John. I was like, you know, I got, when I got to film school, you know, I was mm. like, man, I want to, I want to be like, I want to be like that guy. I want to be like John Singleton. I want to be like Spike Lee. And, yeah. and it's because of what Spike has done. It's because of what John has done. It's because of what these other filmmakers have done. That's the reason why I am where I am today It's because I have examples. I have people who were told no, and they were like, hey, you know what? 
fuck it. You know, I'm going to go ahead and keep doing it. Yeah. I love the idea of like bringing up those around you, like bringing your people up, like you said, and Rebecca and I talk about this all the time of like, when we spot another woman who is hardworking and hustling, exactly like you said, like, that's the person I'm going to bring along with me and like lift each other up. I absolutely love that. And I'm curious too, though, like what can, what can we do as allies on set? Like what can, what can folks who aren't black do to like make things better or what would make things better? Do you think? I think just incorporating, you know, I think just, you know, if you, if, you know, if you know something like, like, for example, you know, when I was working with Rebecca, there was a lot of things that I didn't know, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of like, I mean, like, I think, for example, like we started that whole schedule thing, that yeah. weekly schedule thing, mm-hmm. right? I, I wasn't privy to that, you know what I mean? But like, Rebecca sat there and was like, hey, you know, this is how you do it. And so I think that what people are, what, I guess, quote unquote, white folks or non-minorities can do is that, you know, you guys can lend a hand when you see that there's a hand that needs to be lent. Yes, absolutely. You know what I'm saying? Taking the time and saying, hey, let me show you this. Let me show you that. Because yeah. I mean, there are things yeah. that Rebecca showed me in Atlanta that I still apply today with Craig. And, so you know, she took the time and said, hey, you know, like, let's sit down. I mean, I don't know how many times I came to your office and we had lunch and we talked. I loved our lunches together. And, they were my favorite right, part of the exactly. day. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. And and, and and that's and that's all it is, is that saying, hey, how can I lend a hand? And yeah. And how can we mentor each other? Mm-hmm. Because Rob, exactly. you've all mm-hmm. you've taught me so much. Exactly. You know? And that, and I think that's what people can do. You know, I think that, you know, taking the time and saying, Okay, cool, I see that this young brother yeah. or whatever, you know, may not quite know everything that's going on or he may he I may be sharper at something else that he may he may be just learning right now let me take him aside respectfully and say hey bro this is uh this you know I've been doing this you know I've been I've been on a couple different movies and and I've I've kind of gone through what you've gone through if you don't mind maybe I can show you how I did it right yeah that's great that's a that's such a good way to put it Rob so you were super close with John and what was your like last memory with him? Uh, my last memory with of, with John was I was at his baby shower in, uh, in Westwood. It was his last, uh, last kid. His name is Seven. And I remember that I was at the baby shower and I was hanging out with John. And we were mm-hmm. just talking and I just got the producer credit on Dolomite and he was just so proud and and, you know, he was like, man, you know, you're doing big things. And, you know, uh, man, like, I, I, I'm so happy to see how far you've come. And John told me to go home and write. Wow. When I left, he was like, man, go home and write, go home and write, go home and write. Mm. And that day I was actually, um, I had like, I had the whole day planned out. I woke up, I said, hey, I'm gonna go to John's baby shower. I'm gonna go down to, um, the marathon store, you know, go to the Sloss and Swap Me, get some house shoes, get some soul food. Like, I'm just going to chill in yeah. the hood for the day, you know? And because that was like, that was kind of like the thing, you know, like you go down to the marathon store, you know, and, you, you know, maybe Nipsey may show up. He may not show up. Now you're talking about Nipsey uh, Hustle, Rob? Um, yeah, Nipsey. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, and so John kept saying, he's like, go home and write, go home and write, go home and write, go home and write. And something told me that day to go home and write. Mm. 
And so I did. And then three hours later, I got a phone call that said Nipsey got shot. Oh my God. <gasps> oh my God. And you would have been there if you had gone right. to see him. And it was crazy because I had the opportunity uh, to meet Nipsey twice. I didn't know him personally. Uh, I'm friends with a bunch of people that knew him personally and grew up with him. But mm -hmm. um, Nipsey, I, I, I've never really met a person before where I just kind of like felt their energy. And right. I, I was like, man, he's like, he's such a good dude, you know? And mm -hmm. that was the thing where it was so sad for me when I, when I heard he passed mm -hmm. because, you know, he actually did what, what Tupac talked about, you know, Tupac didn't have the opportunity to do it because Tupac died very, very young. Dang. But see, Nipsey actually did it. He talked about it and he did it. You know, he he didn't. He was one of those guys who made a bunch of money and said, "Hey, I'm gonna leave my my neighborhood and buy a place in Beverly Hills or Palisades or whatever." He stayed in his area, and the one thing I think that was very um, very moving for me was that I grew up going to Ward on Wills. It was a, it's a skating rink in uh, in Midtown. Okay. And they actually shut it down uh, some years back. And Nipsey wow. actually bought the place and reopened it back up. Wow. And just, the, I mean, just the fact, I mean, just like his, his whole hustle, his whole mentality about, you know, being there and, and bigging up his people and, 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 you know, you know, he, he bought that ship on Crenshaw and Slauson. And what did he do? He started putting ex-cons on, you know, he started putting on young black kids in the neighborhood, giving them jobs and, and so forth. And, that is what um, what I thought was very, very moving and very, very inspirational is that he didn't forget about his people. Right. And that's what that's what I strive to do, you know, is that when when things start moving for me, is that how can yeah. I how can I find that next John Singleton, right. you know, in South Central? How can I find the next Spike Lee in South Central? You know, how can I find the next Lee Daniels? How can I find the next Ava DuVernay? You know, and and I think like yeah, you know, and like I said, that that's that's something that was um, very inspirational for me is that, you know, he he was just he was just a great he was just an all around great dude, and he believed in giving back to his people. And I think his death as well, um, because he was killed by a, a gang member, right? Yeah, a gang member so, from his 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 rival, or not not his rival, but a gang member from his actual hood. So to that point, I think going back to Boys in the Hood, which is my theme somehow of this interview, <laughs> because it's still so relevant today. So, so much of what John was trying to tell in Boys in the Hood was that, you know, I think they even taught, I think um, Trey's dad even mentions the statistic in the film about how most black men that die in South Central and Los Angeles are killed by other black men. Right and killed by gang members and there was so much death in that film and it was so heartbreaking i mean my god that movie is so sad i know mary kate and i both talked about how much we cry when we watch that movie but um but to that point it just shows now that movie was filmed in 1991 right. or released in 1991 and we're in 2020 yeah right and this stuff is all still happening including i mean they also show the um injustice with cops there's right. a lot of scenes where they're showing um, black men being abused by white cops and, you know, his his theme of the helicopters, the police oh, helicopters yeah. is almost in every scene. Right. It's, an, it's a normal thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I just it's just crazy, Rob, that, you know, all this time has passed and really not yeah. a lot has changed. And 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 
to that point, what's happening right now in America with Black Lives Matter and all these protests, I mean, I feel like we're finally saying like enough is enough, right? Exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, I mean, in my life, you know, I've had guns pulled on me five times, you know, and one time in particular, and when I was in college, you know, mm-hmm. being Awful. driving, literally studying with my roommate, we're driving out of the campus to get some food. And after we've been studying for finals all night, and we get pulled over. And my father always taught me to keep my hands on 10 and two, you wait for further instruction. The cop is the judge, jury and the hangman. You know what I mean? Like, it is what it is. You're black. It, it just is what it is. It's not fair. It is what it is. And he pulled a shotgun on us. And his excuse was, well, you didn't listen to my orders. It's like, dude, <laughs> my hands are on 10 and 2, bro. I'm, I'm complying. And, right. and so, like, that's the environment, you know, go- growing up with, you know, having, dealing with racist teachers and things like that. It, it's, it's, been, it's been very, very tough for me. Uh, you know, but at the same time, too, is that I know change is not going to happen in, in, in my lifetime. It's a significant change. You know, and and to a certain degree, well, you know, minorities will probably be always looked at as as second second class citizens. But my whole thing is that what can I do now, and mm-hmm. and how can my voice be heard? And so when mm-hmm. I go out there and protest, I'm not protesting for myself. Mm-hmm. I'm protesting for my people, and I'm protesting for my lineage. So hopefully, my kids, kids, kids won't have to endure what I've what I've gone through. And right. you know, the whole thing that's happening is, you know, it's it's. It's a very, it's a very, very wild time. You know, it's um, seeing what I've, I mean, going through what I've gone through in my life and kind of seeing, not kind of, but seeing what I've, what I've seen, like Rebecca said, not much has changed. You know, I mean, it's just getting filmed now. I mean, what my father used to say all, all the time when he was my age, he goes, growing up in LA, you kept, you, you always hear about these, you know, unarmed black kids who are getting pulled over by cops for traffic tickets. Yeah. Dying custody, dying custody. Sandra yeah. Bland happens all the, he said it happened all the time where a dude wow. get pulled over for a routine traffic stop, but then dying custody. Mm-hmm. And we never knew about it. Right. And you don't hear we about never it. Never knew about it. it, it yeah. And, 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 and that's the thing. But I, what I want, what I will say is that I, I feel like yeah. right now, this is, this is, uh, you know, this is a time where some change is starting to happen. Like seeing those statues come down, the Confederate statues, and 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 I know the one thing for me is that I'm I'm a type of person where you know if you don't like me, then bro, just tell me you don't like me. You know what I mean? And so now we're starting to see. It's like because Donald Trump is actually enabling these people. Where now we're starting to see these blatantly racist people come out and say, you know what? I don't like you. I, you right. know, I hate you. And it's like I rather deal with that. I rather someone come up to my come up to me to my face and say, yo. I don't like you because you're black as opposed to being as opposed to hidden racism so that's the yeah. one thing that you know i i am now that now that i'm really really seeing it and we're now seeing because i mean we're seeing on camera now where people don't mm-hmm. care about their job situation or how they're looking they're like hey you know we don't we don't like black folks you know what i'm saying uh you know lack of a better term we don't like niggas or niggers you know what i'm saying and so with that being said i think that you know what we can do as a as a black as as black folks is that we have to keep educating ourselves and yeah. we have mm-hmm. to keep doing the right thing but we also have to stand our ground you know uh like Malcolm X said by any means necessary don't go out there and start some shit at the same time too 
don't back down, you know, because mm-hmm. that, that was how I was raised that, you know, you don't let a bully bully, you, you know, mm-hmm. you, if your bully messes with you, you know, you punch him in the mouth. And I think that we're getting to a point now with in our, in our generation where black folks are saying enough is enough. Yeah. Enough mm-hmm. is enough. We're going to continue to fight. I love that. That's so powerful. And we stand with you, Rob, a hundred percent. Of course. Mm-hmm. Rob, thank you so, so much for being here with us today. This was an incredible conversation. Yeah, it was so meaningful. Oh. I'm really, really appreciative of you taking your time to do this. It was great. Yes, of course, of course. You're definitely an inspiration and I hope everybody can gain something from this conversation with you. Oh yeah, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. All right, guys, thank you so much again for tuning into episode four. We love having you here. We're loving hearing your feedback. So keep sending it. Um, our email address is we are not invited podcast at gmail.com. It's also in our episode notes. So hit us up. Yes, thank you guys so much. We look forward to bringing you guys episode five. And we have some more special guests on the way. But seriously, guys, but seriously, guys, how How are are we we not not invited? invited?